everyone. So I know that we said we were taking a little post-season break as we gear up for the third season of The Culture Journalist, but Emily and I found that we simply could not stop talking about the current situation with Spotify, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and others versus Joe Rogan and misinformation that he's spreading about COVID on his Spotify podcast and the many cultural and technological implications therein. And we realized, well, what is a culture journalist episode if not this? And so we wanted to come on today to dig a little bit deeper into it, help parse some of the confusion, and set the scene a little bit for a lot of the topics that we're going to be discussing in our third season, which is coming at you very soon. So, okay, here's what happened. The message that started it all, which was posted by Neil Young to his rather amazingly titled Times Contrarian online newspaper, and he said, please immediately inform Spotify that I'm actively canceling all my music available on Spotify as soon as possible. I'm doing this because Spotify is spreading false information about vaccines, potentially causing death to those who believe the disinformation being spread by them. He doesn't actually like point at Joe Rogan specifically, except that he ends it by saying they can have Rogan or Young, not both. I also love that he's like, love Earth, be well, Neil Young. (laughs) Incredible sign off. Anyway, the post came two days after a coalition of hundreds of scientists, medical professionals, and academics released an open letter to Spotify calling upon the streaming giant to, quote, immediately establish a clear and public policy, unquote, to moderate COVID-19 related misinformation. The letter notably pointed to an episode on the Joe Rogan experience where the podcaster interviewed a notorious vaccine skeptic named Dr. Robert Malone, along with what they suggested was a broader history of Rogan using his podcast as a platform for conspiracy theories and even people promoting things like off-label use of drugs like ivermectin. And so even though Young's letter kind of mysteriously then was taken down uh, a couple days after, his ultimatum was serious. And on Wednesday, Spotify began quietly removing his music from its platforms. Or maybe not so quietly. They did issue a statement uh, to The Hollywood Reporter that said, We all want the world's music and audio content to be available to Spotify users. With that comes great responsibility in balancing both safety for listeners and freedom for creators. We have detailed content policies in place, and we've removed over 20,000 podcast episodes related to COVID since the start of the pandemic. We regret Neil's decision to remove his music from Spotify, but hope to welcome him back soon. So the way that a lot of outlets reported this and people tweeted about this made it sound like Spotify had kicked him off of the platform. That wasn't exactly true. It was more that Neil Young had said that he was leaving if they didn't kick off Rogan. But either way, it was a tacit admission by Spotify that it had chosen to stand by Rogan and not deplatform him in the way that, say, you know, Twitter deplatformed Trump. And this shouldn't have been all that surprising, given that Spotify is a giant for-profit platform that signed a $100 million deal with Rogan last year. It also had echoes, I'd say, of the Chappelle controversy from a few months back with Netflix. But 
The event sparked this explosive public debate about the role of large platforms in combating online misinformation that split along fairly predictable ideological lines. Rogan fans, conservative media, and the Glenn Greenwalds of this world slammed Neil Young for kind of blowing the Rogan situation out of proportion. Democrats, or at least people on the left, praised Neil Young's bravery and criticized Spotify for not doing more to tamp down on misinformation, sparking a viral cancel Spotify hashtag and what appeared to be a mass boycott where for an evening everyone seemed to be trying to cancel their Spotify subscriptions and reporting that Spotify wasn't letting them or they were having trouble doing it. It's kind of unclear what happened there. So the saga initially appeared to be a costly one for Spotify, whose valuation fell at reported $2 billion over the span of three days. Though, if you look at the bigger context, it's actually just been a choppy time for tech platforms recently and also subscription sites. Spotify has also lost almost half of its value since its February 2021 peak. So that's something to keep in mind when you see pieces saying like, oh, well, this really made a difference and the stock is declining. Like, "Mm, not so much. And its price has actually already bounced back from last week's dip. So all that's still unfolding with fellow boomer music bigwigs like Joni Mitchell and Nils Lofgren quitting the platform in solidarity. All that's to say, if you can't tell, the situation has gotten Emily and I pretty fired up too, which is why we're here. After years of observing how Spotify has impacted the lives of artists and the music industry as a whole, it does feel vindicating to finally see the company receive a bit of mainstream scrutiny for its business practices. But it's also been a little frustrating to watch the reckoning play out in this particular way. Like, we're seeing society itself collectively fixate on the symptoms of the disease and not the malady itself. All right, Emily, so what do you think? Is Neil Young a hero? I mean, he will always be my hero. I love Neil Young. I feel like I probably wouldn't have traveled down the career path I did if I hadn't been randomly introduced to his music in a coffee shop when I was a teenager. But yeah, I mean, I I was initially super excited to see that he was standing up to Spotify, that he was doing this, that he had the guts to do something probably a lot of artists like want to do but haven't done can't do. I did though think that his critique of the platform nonetheless left a bit to be desired. Like obviously the misinformation issue is a big issue and it is important to take a stand but it seemed like his critique of the platform was just really limited to that one issue and sort of ignored so many other reasons why an artist might want to pull their catalog for Spotify. And I was just sort of waiting to hear him say that, like the company's quest for profit that keeps a star like Rogan on air 
is also the same thing that propels its underlying exploitative model that has made it impossible for so many artists to make a living off of their work. I was waiting for him to say that, and then I saw that he had issued another post on the Times Contrarian, kind of further explaining the reason why he was leaving Spotify. And it was just like a thing about how there was like low fidelity sound, like the quality of the sound files was not as good as it was on other streaming platforms. Which has been like, you know, his age old complaint about digital music and streaming going back like probably at least a decade now. Which is totally a valid claim to make. And I know a lot of artists feel that way, but it was like, why are you focusing on this right now, man? It does seem a little weird that Like, I get it because on the one hand, you're trying to bring attention to this one specific issue. So maybe he didn't want to muddy the waters by getting into Spotify's low payment of artists and that sort of thing. Or maybe he wanted to keep it focused. But at the same time, like you just said, they kind of go hand in hand. And given the fact that he is like this lovably grumpy guy that has no bones about like critiquing any institutional wrongdoings, it's a little... It's a little weird, yeah, that he didn't bring this into the conversation. Well, he does directly like invoke Spotify privileging business over art. He says, if you if you support Spotify, you are destroying an art form, business over art. Spotify plays the artist's music at 5% of its quality and charges you like it was the real thing. I mean, I think that he might just maybe not be super aware. I, I assume that like as such a huge rock icon who is extremely successful he might not have personally experienced this or not been around other artists who are experiencing this but I I, I don't know Andrea tell our listeners like what happened next so given the way that he was already piling on Spotify it seems like this would have been an opportune time to mention the fact that you know artists are only still getting paid a fraction of a penny per stream And not only that, but along with other streaming services, its per stream payouts actually decreased during the pandemic. So bad enough that they were already getting, I think it's 0.037 of a penny per stream. Uh, But that's actually gone down. Joey from the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, who we had on this podcast a bit ago, published the chart showing this I don't know if it's like a conscious effort to squeeze artists or if it maybe had to do with like declining advertising revenues or whatever but we are seeing headlines that Spotify like a lot of other tech companies have increased its profits overall over the course of the pandemic right and so I wonder I would wish I could ask him myself like why Why not engage with this? Instead, he directed his fans to Amazon Music, where he appears to have landed a new partnership that involves inviting fans to sign up for a four-month free trial. And of course, there's a lot of reasons this is ironic, including but not limited to the fact that Amazon most certainly has its own uh, imbalances and issues when it comes to, I don't know, just about anything that touches that company. Yeah, and like providing computational infrastructure for the Department of Defense and shit. Right, Amazon Web Services, yeah. And and hosting products that are made under very exploitative 
conditions in the global south and like lots of things where you would think that Neil Young would be very angry at. Yeah, Amazon feels like like very anti-Neil Young vibes, you know, like workers having to piss in bottles on driving shifts and having computer monitoring software to make sure that they're not taking longer routes or taking breaks. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. To be fair, though, we all, I think, struggle with detaching ourselves from Amazon in this mid or post pandemic world, you know, as much as I think we'd all like to boycott it. We all end up just like needing to get some toilet paper in bulk and don't have time to run to the store, right? But that's very different than like hyping Amazon up and striking a deal with them and trying to direct more people to give them money. Yeah, and it's possible that Neil Young just isn't thinking about these things or he's more focused on, understandably, the pressing life or death issue of COVID-19. But I don't know, it was just interesting that It it took something like this for him to take this stance and for the whole world to pay attention to Spotify and its practices when so many conversations have been trickling up for so long and it it just never developed this level of momentum and attention. Right. Yeah. Don't get us wrong. We're not trying to like, yeah, but like him doing a very good thing here, you know, and that's ultimately what it is. But it is also sort of, it's a good waypoint for unpacking like the larger discourse here. I think it's just worth giving pause on this whole issue so that this doesn't just become another artifact of the news cycle, like the Chappelle thing, for example, however you might feel about that. Totally. Andrea, you sent me an article from the New York Times this morning by Kevin Roos, and he started off the piece reminding us that this sort of cycle, like what we are seeing here has played out with nearly every major social media platform so far. We've seen this kind of thing happen before. We've even seen it with Spotify, which we'll talk about a bit later. Andrew, what do you think of Spotify's response to the whole thing? Its response to Neil Young and the public pressure campaign? It's complicated because... You know, there, there, there's a gut reaction, right, which is that it really shows where Spotify's priorities are. A, the fact that it no longer even refers to itself as a music company. It describes itself as an audio company, which has definitely, you know, been something we've seen on the horizon for a while as it has expanded its podcasting division, made things like $100 million deals with Rogan. But it also you know, says that it's kind of clearly okay with turning a blind eye to misinformation when something is lucrative for them, which is also, again, nothing new for tech platforms. Think about, you know, kind of how long it took Twitter finally deciding to ban Trump. On the other hand, and we'll get to this uh, in a little bit, but there are some really complex issues surrounding free speech with doing so and the fact that these are ultimately private companies and private platforms. It's similar, but it's also different from the legal parameters around something like shouting fire in a crowded theater, you know? Yeah, and also sort of pointing to the next phase beyond this idea of the platform as merely something that hosts other people's speech, but more and more platforms moving into a bit more of a publisher role where they are actually actively paying creators money to make stuff and how the same content moderation 
practices that would work in the one kind of platform become muddier when you were actually in business with somebody like Joe Rogan. Right. Like ultimately, I think it's almost a bit short-sighted to put the onus on Spotify or any of these tech companies for having a certain kind of like moral responsibility, just because we are now at the point where these platforms are for better or for worse, almost too big to fail. And so I think really the larger takeaway here is illuminating just what a somewhat unstoppable chokehold they have as publishers that exist above responsibility. What do you think of their response? Well, I wanted to talk about the specific way in which they responded. I think like other platforms responding to the COVID crisis and COVID misinformation, um, you sort of saw these symbolic gestures that suggested that the company was taking this seriously, but kind of in a way that doesn't necessarily disrupt the attentional dynamics that got us here in the first place. Spotify founder Daniel Ek released a statement, I think on Sunday, finally revealing the content moderation guidelines that Spotify claims to have already been employing, um, maybe through the pandemic, I'm not sure the time span there. And that that is fair. I think it is good to a have those moderation guidelines in place and share them with the public. I did think it was weird that they hadn't shared them before. Like, wouldn't this be useful for content creators and podcasters and musicians to know these guidelines and see them and understand them? They also seemed a bit incomplete. That's just kind of a side note. But for example, in the COVID-19 section, they said something about like, you can't encourage the assumption of bleach products to cure various illnesses and diseases, but they don't mention like other products. Like bleach was one thing that I remember like Donald Trump, he was talking about ingesting bleach, but doesn't mention like ivermectin. I, I just don't understand why they chose these specific examples. It's like weirdly specific. And, and not the exact ones that Rogan was I don't, I don't actually, I don't personally like listen to Joe Rogan very much, but, but seemed narrow. And then he said that Spotify would be adding a content advisory to any podcast, including a discussion of COVID-19 that would direct listeners to this like dedicated COVID-19 hub with up-to-date public health information. So similar to when you're on Instagram and somebody is like, I got COVID or something. And then there's this little bubble that pops up and it's like, here's a link to the, you know, CDC. The little banner that pops up, which I've always felt like, I mean, on Instagram, maybe, but in this case too, just feels like kind of a flimsy bandaid, like just them kind of covering their own asses. I, I doubt there's any research on this, but it'd be really cool to see if there was any research identifying like how, helpful or how much of a deterrent against misinformation putting up those disclaimers are because frankly chances are if you're listening to joe rogan already like you're already skeptical of covid and stuff right i mean i I don't i don't know i assume that you're like somebody who would maybe be open to questioning the like liberal orthodoxy at least 
Right, exactly. Or questioning what scientists are saying, what the government is saying, and considering alternate options. Right, like it's a nice gesture. And don't get me wrong, we should have these. It's crazy and unfortunate that we even have to have them in the first place. But is somebody going to like click on Spotify's COVID disclaimer now and be like, oh, wow, I had no idea. This really clears everything up for me. Yeah, I guess like it's better to have them than not to have them. But it sometimes annoys me because sometimes what is being tagged is like just legitimate information, you know, like a platform being like, here is our reporting on this that is guided by consulting with experts. And then it kind of has this like weird condescending feeling when it is off like that. I don't know. Right. Maybe they are going to be taking down additional content and they say they've been taking down thousands of episodes, but it's kind of like, well, we're not going to focus on taking stuff down. We're just going to add this little note next to it. And to me, that sort of suggests continuing the dynamics of allowing controversial or inaccurate or conspiratorial information to circulate, but just like acknowledging that we don't agree with that or something. I don't know. No, exactly. It doesn't even have the same agency as putting the ball back in the listener's court. It's like just totally passing the buck. I don't know. I feel like that was something that some tech lawyers originally devised. And they're like, you know what, just put this on everything that covers your asses. It's definitely not as big a gesture as like, you know, telling Joe Rogan that he can't do this any longer or suspending him for him to contemplate his ways. Like there's bigger gestures you could make to curb misinformation than that. Exactly. So what you reminded me of when we were talking about this, Andrea, was that this isn't the first time that Spotify has run up against these sorts of content moderation issues, not necessarily related to COVID, but some other very serious issues on the platform. Andrea, can you take us back to the R. Kelly scandal in 2018 and how you saw Spotify reacting in that context? I know that you actually wrote a piece on this for Noisy. Yeah, I did. This was sort of in the the budding days of the Me Too movement and cancel culture. This was before R. Kelly, you know, had been, he's now in jail, but while R. Kelly was still embroiled in controversy and there were even more allegations coming out against him, not just him, but there were other artists like XXXTentacion who also had cases of abuse, assault against them. People were calling for Spotify to remove these artists' music. Of course, that's all centralizing around the, the larger existential debate of separation of art from artist. That said, these were two cases where these artists were actually like talking about some of their misconduct in their songs. So people were calling for them to be removed. That that didn't happen. But what did happen was that these artists, or R. Kelly anyway, was then removed from all editorial playlists and ag- algorithmic uh, distribution. And then they also issued, much like this situation, a code of conduct that suddenly appeared, but it was specifically against hate speech or hateful behavior. Mm. And that was immediately met with backlash in the music business for being too subjective and concerning. 
A few days later, Spotify dropped that hateful content policy and reinstated XXXTentacion's music, but not R. Kelly's. And they also issued a mea culpa. They said, while we believe our intentions were good, the language was too vague. We created confusion and concern and didn't spend enough time getting input from our own team and key partners before sharing new guidelines. So this Rogan situation ain't their first content-pleasing rodeo. And the last, and arguably less pointed one, ended badly for them. That got me wondering at the time, well, you know, people just seem to be being like, going with a gut reaction, saying like, Spotify, take down their music. These are bad people. Well, okay, but it's this is a business and there's a lot more complicated than that. So I did a piece looking into, I think the headline of it actually was, how easy is it for businesses to walk away from problematic artists? And the thing is, there's a bunch of legal and ethical mechanisms that lurk beneath the surface of the simple argument of right versus wrong. One of those things being that this is not like some kid uploading their music to SoundCloud, right? Like this goes through several middlemen of publishers, record labels, distributors, and there's a bunch of contracts and legal parameters in between. So a lot of times if a label or an artist or someone wants their music removed from a platform, they're actually at risk of then getting sued by someone else involved in the process. Um, So it really depends on what kind of legal clauses are in there. There are certain things like morality clauses that will give a publisher the right or or an artist uh, the right to remove their music or separate from that entity. But if there isn't something like that specifically built in, it can actually be very difficult to just remove your music. So that could potentially explain why Neil Young was able to do this. Joni Mitchell was able to do this, but you're not seeing that many other artists removing their music yet. Exactly. Like there's the fact that increasingly many artists don't have control over their catalogs. It's not even up to them anymore. Neil Young did just offload his catalog, but he was able to remove his music. So I don't know, maybe there was some kind of clause in his deal. But then, of course, there's the consideration of the fact that not all artists can quite literally afford to remove their music from Spotify, especially when you consider how little they're getting from it in the first place. Even if they're not making that much money, like there are smaller artists or independent artists who just need the visibility of the platform, who need to be on these different playlists and algorithms for exposure and you know, I'm sure nobody likes having to be in that position, but that is just the reality that we are in currently. And then as far as Spotify removing the albums of an artist like R. Kelly, you're saying that it's difficult for them to legally do that as well? Yes, it can be. Because again, it raises free speech issues. If somebody hasn't been charged with a crime, which like, for example, R. Kelly wasn't at the time, you know, that removes even more legal justification for doing so. That felt sort of implicit to me and why they walked back that policy at the time. I can't speak to how that plays out for something like a podcasting deal where Spotify paid for exclusive rights to Rogan's show, for example, so key difference there. But similarly, it brings in free speech issues.
And of course, this is all happening against this wider backdrop of larger conversations about free speech in America. And it's a conversation that has taken a particularly creepy and confusing turn in recent months as, for example, conservative parents and politicians mobilized to ban books from school curricula or libraries. Just uh, this past week, for example, a Tennessee school board voted to ban Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Right, which, and, and Mouse, if you're not familiar, is one of my favorite books, but it's a graphic novel about the Holocaust and what was experienced during the Holocaust. And it is, it has some quote unquote adult scenes in it. I think there's like a, a shirtless woman in one panel. Uh, and that's that's what parents were arguing was like inappropriate for kids to read. But the subtext, of course, being like anti-Semitism here. Yeah, I love Mouse as well. It was like a really big revelation to read in college. But, you know, what do we make of the implications of this entire scenario within that context? Because, you know, I have conservative family members that I bicker with. And, you know, one of them sent me an article that was critiquing Neil Young's role in this whole situation and saying something like, can we not withstand somebody publishing false information? Is that going to cause our society to crumble? No, like, it's, it's not a huge deal. But then now we're seeing more and more commentators on the left also say, you know, how can you live in a society where you're trying to ban books that you don't agree with? Like, can't you just withstand something that makes you uncomfortable? And it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I'm super confused. It seems like on the one hand, you know, your people are calling for books to be banned, books about fascism to be banned, because they make people uncomfortable or it's considered inappropriate for people of a certain age, but misinformation isn't. <laughs> misinformation that could, you know, yeah, threaten public health. And I, I think another thing that this brings up too is the context in which these two debates are taking place right now are somewhat different in that one is in context of a privatized corporation and the other is in context of public education and by that I mean just more like one is private and one is public although obviously the lines with all that if this highlights nothing else the fact that they are getting increasingly blurred yeah and also like banning books in the context of the public sphere seems like way more against the values of free speech as immortalized in the constitution than a private corporation making its own decisions. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think it's like, you know, these are, these are respective shots fired in the culture war, right? Like ban books or do we ban Joe Rogan? And and you can't not think of the two then having some kind of cumulative influence on each other, which is again, what makes this such a difficult thing to parse. You know, free speech is for now a right as Americans, but it is illegal, for example, to shout fire in a crowded theater. Why? Because that poses a risk to public safety. And that's always been something we have accepted. Although it does feel like if that were to come up as a potential law now, 
you know, some congressperson proposing making it federally illegal to, to shout fire in a crowded theater. I mean, imagine the ridiculous pushback that would happen. So thank God that that's, that's been a law for a long time. I think that's helped save lives. But the parallel here to me is to what extent is spreading misinformation about vaccines and COVID the equivalent to shouting fire in a crowded theater? Like, is that where is the line to you? Well, I think an important thing to understand is that we are dealing with larger forces of amplification in this sort of social media context than we would if like Joe Rogan was a dude who like made a zine in his house and put copies of it around the neighborhood or something. And that these platforms have the uh, ability to amplify these claims and produce real world harm by virtue of that fact. And so the platform has to take responsibility for what happens after the recording is published, basically. And and that has to be sort of built into the way that platforms understand content moderation. What you see too often is platforms like letting this stuff bubble for a really long time, understanding inherently that it is lucrative, profiting off of the lucrative nature of this, and then only after a public pressure campaign occurs, considering banning the person or implementing new guidelines. Yeah, 100%. You know, we talk about this being a free speech issue, but like, how how much is it free speech if you also have a billion dollar corporation and the power of all its algorithms, etc.? behind it, like amplifying it and controlling essentially how much or how little exposure that thing gets. Like, is that free speech? Which I think is sort of my ultimate take on all of this, which is that you can't talk about the free speech implications of removing Joe Rogan without talking about, you know, the more subtle, but arguably more insidious implications of how platforms already have a chokehold on free speech via algorithms, marketing, advertising, newsfeed curation, In some ways, I feel like the damage is already done. Totally. And like, you know, Twitter had the choice, if not to de-platform Trump earlier on, to at least, I don't know, de-emphasize him in the algorithm or something. They, They keep information about how the algorithms operate hidden. They don't tell the public what they're doing behind the scenes which which I think is a problem. And we're actually going to be talking about that in like another episode, but they don't tell us how they decide to amplify one thing or another. Um, I I don't really understand why they, they had to let the Trump thing go as far as it did and why it was only after the Capitol riots that they decided to take action. Yeah, exactly. It's like they've built in, for inflammatory stuff to to exponentially snowball when it gets traction versus if you look at like how Twitter was constructed in, you know, 2009, 2011, whenever, it was just a stream of stuff coming out in real time. And in that sense, everything just kind of had equal footing. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was to me a form of free speech. You and I are constantly like every week being like, man, I tweeted out this thing and I thought it was interesting or I thought it was funny and it got like two likes I feel like nobody's seen it. Why is that? 
Yeah, like when you spend two weeks on an article and then Twitter shows it to like 100 people or something, but then you tweet like, I'm hungry, and then it gets like 100 likes. And like Spotify, similarly, I mean, it's a, it's a very different platform that specializes in different forms of content, but Spotify has a similar amount of power to amplify the content that it chooses to amplify. And obviously it's going to be amplifying the content that it considers to be more lucrative from the perspective of, you know, advertising revenue. It is also going to be amplifying music that is connected to label relationships, for example, that are important to them. It's, it's going to be amplifying the content of original series or podcasts it's creating. Which is like so, their right, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there is like a, a level of, by dint of this being an algorithmic platform, the platform is not a neutral platform. It is making curatorial decisions. It is deciding what to amplify and what not to. I mean, it, we just scratched the surface. Like there's all kinds of stuff you can look into about like, you know, whether they practice a form of payola in the music industry. They had an initiative recently, I believe, where artists could be algorithmically boosted, but they would have to take a lower cut of money, like a lower per stream rate if they did so. Like there's, there's all kinds of tinkering and the potential for all kinds of tinkering going on behind the scenes regarding what content is actually reaching you. Exactly. So whether it's an independent artist demanding a penny per stream or, you know, us talking about just having people see the articles that we tweet out and work so hard on, all of it comes down to the fact that like those who are already equipped to benefit the platforms will then benefit from them. Totally. And this all comes back to one of the reasons why I really wanted to record this podcast, which is that, you know, the Rogan versus Young controversy and the fact that it is revolving around this specific issue and that it took this issue to get some like major public scrutiny on the platform is just another example of these attentional dynamics playing out. And as someone who has been reporting on labor issues for musicians and cares deeply about artists being able to make money, this is frustrating to see that like when the pandemic happened and artists no longer could make money from touring, all Spotify did was introduce this like little virtual tip jar and that they've like further squeezed artists and like lowered their fees during the pandemic that just over the years, streaming platforms, not just Spotify, but streaming in general has reduced the ability of artists to sell individual records and just completely transform the record industry in such a way that like, unless you're already pretty big and successful, you're not going to be making any money at all really off the music itself. Like these are the issues that I wish people were talking about. I wish that Neil Young was talking about and that obviously like a lot of musicians and musician unions and musician organizations are now jumping on this moment to try to get attention. Right. But of course that's not as sexy or controversial as an issue 
as essentially anti-vaxxing and misinformation, which is like the heart of the culture war right now, you know? And I can't, you know, I we're talking about how this is finally bringing public attention and criticism to Spotify, but there's perhaps a more cynical part of me that's wondering, like, I don't, I just like, don't know if this is going to stick, man. You know, there's a lot of outcry against Spotify. When again, the R Kelly issue came up, there's been outcry against Spotify, not quite on this level, but there's been a lot of reporting on the penny per stream issue and, and perhaps payola issues and critiques of its huge powers. We've seen it about Twitter. We've seen it about Facebook. And, you know, every time there's public outcry, you know, they weather it. Yeah. Is this hurting Spotify, Andrea? I feel like that was an important question for you to to ask. Right. Yeah. I mean, or what will it take to hurt Spotify? And like, what does hurt mean? Right. Does that mean, you know, I think hitting it where it hurts in its wallet, is it like a question of bad PR? I don't know, especially in this day and age of contrarianism, if like bad PR like really, really makes that much of a difference. There's always going to be people that are keen to hop on and support whatever other people don't like. And I don't know if historically like boycotts have necessarily been the most, you know, I think it's great to boycott if you want to boycott and I will happily join a boycott, but I, I don't know if that can make more of a dent in a company like Spotify's bottom line. And as we saw, like, we don't even know if the stock price fall was connected to the Neil Young thing. It certainly went back up within just a few days. Could have been connected to the arc of Neil Young pulling his music and then Daniel Eck releasing that statement. But it's, it's a choppy time in general. I have no idea. I do hope that this will spur consumers and policymakers to learn more about the economics of a platform like Spotify and the broader kinds of economic impact that it has on the music industry and on musicians. I hope that it will inspire people to study the numbers, learn more about where their money is going every month if they do subscribe. Like, did you know that when you are listening to an artist that you love, the money that you are paying is not going to that artist directly? Did you know that probably most of the money you're spending is just being pooled into this larger pie that primarily goes to the winners of the streaming game, like the major labels and the major label artists. Um, The Union of Musicians and Allied Workers has been putting a lot of information out there. And the union, UMA, currently is using this moment to push its Justice at Spotify initiative, which is asking for Spotify to pay artists at least one cent per stream. They want Spotify to adopt a user-centric payment model, which is instead of your money filtering towards the larger pie and most of it going towards the bigger players, it would actually go straight to the artists you listen to. They want more clarity in how payola works, etc. So now is a good time to at least, I think, read about these initiatives and understand what is really going on if this issue fires you up like it fires us up. 
And you can definitely find further reading. We'll be posting that on our sub stacks. But, you know, all it's to say is I think social pressure to a point can do something like like what's what incentive does Spotify have to follow up on UMA's demands, for example, other than having social pressure in the extent that, you know, nobody really wants to be seen as the bad guy. But I feel like that takes a lot compared to them being willing to take a smaller financial hit that they might be taking from this, the Neil Young situation, for example. You know, we're talking about what effect is this going to have on Spotify? I think it's going to be relatively negligible. I mean, Spotify is focused on global growth. It's focused on retaining U.S. market share. I was talking to this Billboard editor, uh, Colin Stutz, and he pointed out what I think is a really strong point that I was talking about, which is that this is ultimately just probably better for Spotify's competitors than it is bad for Spotify. So it still can kind of like reinforce streaming and like the model of streaming. Yeah. I mean, Neil Young was like, go to Amazon. And it's just like, are you serious? I'm over here the water's fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I know that some streaming companies have like more favorable payouts to artists than others. And the potential exists for there to be a more ethical kind of streaming company or for certain players to introduce more artist-friendly policies. But there's also the possibility that it's not possible to, like the system itself is broken and the system itself was just like built to do the specific thing. So one criticism to the penny per stream argument and efforts along those lines to reform Spotify is that Spotify was built the way that it was built and streaming is something that can only be lucrative for a company to do if it operates along these specific lines. And I think that that question is up for debate and that we should have more imagination, but we can expect, I think those kinds of arguments like from Spotify streaming companies and their proponents in response to this, that, you know, we can't change the economics of this platform wouldn't just simply not accommodate that. I'm not an expert, so I don't know the answer to that. And I fully support efforts to hold Spotify accountable and, and fight for justice at Spotify. But I also wonder if now could be a moment to sort of step back and look at the system that we are swimming in, look at the system that we've kind of agreed to participate in or been sucked into participating in and think about what other systems can look like. Will there be a point when independent artists get fed up and just decide to opt out of the system completely? I sometimes wonder that. I used to be a touring musician and and I'm not anymore, but I can imagine being at this crossroads where I'm like, do I really want to keep doing this and giving my music away for free for nothing? Or do I want to just be like, you know, fuck it, I'm taking my music off or I'm taking most of my music off and maybe just leaving a few promotional tracks up and I'm going to make people pay or subscribe or something to listen to my music. Like, could there be a future where we view something like Spotify more as like mainstream radio, something more for like the major label industry and for like, you know, talk radio type, bigger radio shows and podcasts, could we have a fork that happens where artists just say, you know what, we're out and this model doesn't serve us and we're going to like 
go back to just paywalling our work essentially, or building a new platform that doesn't cost as much. Right, exactly. And of course, you know, the obstacle in that is the fact that it's not just on the musicians, you know, it's on the consumers as well. We all bought into the system the way it was without questioning it. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's on autopilot. And it's, it, it, it's, it's very much like Amazon shopping that way. You know, mm-hmm. like ultimately nothing is going to sort of trump the convenience of being able to buy all the stuff that you need at the click of a button. Nothing is going to trump the convenience of being able to listen, have the your entire music library, not just your music library, but like the music library, more or less, at your fingertips for $10 a month. People that are perhaps more, you know, morally inclined, sure, will will opt for something else. But I hope to imagine a platform that would be able to like bring that kind of critical mass without the pitfalls that Spotify has, but does that critical mass go hand in hand with that convenience and that kind of like ripping offness? You did have a really great tweet the other day, Emily, that I want to bring up along those lines, which is you said, remember when the main way to hear new music was to go down to a record store and shell out twelve ninety nine or so for a physical copy? Not a system without flaws, but good to remember that the idea of paying for art is something that consumers were fairly pretty content with for decades. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking about it and I almost like personally, and I and I know I'm probably the minority here, but I preferred the old system and I didn't have a ton of money to buy records, but it was like, I don't know, I would like save up like little scraps of like lunch money that remained every day. And like, hopefully by the end of the week, I would have enough to buy like a CD or, you know, something like that. And the scarcity of not having access to everything, like made it more exciting to get a record. And even if I like bought it, and I didn't really like it at first, I would keep listening to it over and over and like, try to find something within it, try to understand it, try to understand like, what is it saying? Is there something it's saying that I could take away from this? I liked that arrangement. Another aspect that I liked of the arrangement was that it was like human curators usually who would influence what I would buy as opposed to, you know, algorithms. Like I, I would go to the record store and really trust the record store clerk. And then they would recommend something to me, or it would be a friend, or it would be a concert that I went to where I saw the band Because that band, you know, someone had curated that lineup. And then from there, I would buy something. And I don't know, like, could introducing scarcity into the equation be potentially beneficial? Yeah, I mean, I think it could. But I just don't know if we can put that toothpaste back in the tube. You've seen artists kind of try it in various iterations. Like, there's that band Salt, Mm -hmm. S-A-U-L-T, that they put out their record nine last year mm-hmm. but it, and it was only available on streaming platforms for 90 days mm-hmm. I'd be curious to see you know what happened with that record what sales were like etc but I can tell you this it didn't end up on a ton of year-end lists um mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because it wasn't as good as their last album but <laughs> You know, and you've seen like Radiohead do this at different times. They've been very outspoken about all of this. But it's just what what is the critical mass that would make a difference or some kind of sea change? I will say, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the old infrastructure of the label system playing this kind of middleman role. 
I think I was talking to you about this a little bit the other day, but I have a friend in a band and they're like an independent DIY band and they had a song blow up on TikTok and subsequently blew up on Spotify and suddenly they were getting like tons of money like from Spotify, which is saying a lot about how much this was getting played. And suddenly all of the majors were like interested in them and recording them, flying them out to LA. And I was talking to my friend about it and he's like, yeah, it's like, it's weird. Cause like, I just don't, there's not a ton of incentive for actually having labels involved here. Um, like, yeah. I don't really know why I would, you know, want to partner with one to help with distribution or publishing of this one song because like we're already reaping the benefits. And I think it's sort of a question of continuing to question systems that way and undermine like, why do we need these middlemen in the first place? We talk about you talking about bringing scarcity back into the equation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, we do need to consider like what the benefits to musicians and artists and the music industry as a whole have been because of the democratization of music via these platforms. So how do we merge those two things? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's great that your friends are in that position. I would say that that seems rare. Yeah. And the thing is, this was a song they had recorded in like 2015, I think. And like wow. suddenly it was blowing up in 2021, 2022. So yeah, there, there is the big lottery element to that. Um, so I don't know, what could like a, a, a better version of these platforms look like? I mean, is it a question maybe of turning them into some kind of equivalent of public utilities or publicly owned resources? Well, now I want to tease an upcoming episode that we recently recorded for next season, which is with James Muldoon, who wrote an excellent book called Platform Socialism. We don't really talk about streaming and music in particular in that episode, but I highly recommend the book. And it just sort of opens up a little space for like thinking about what these alternatives can look like. Something that I'm taking away from the book as I'm finishing it is his emphasis on building platforms that are collectively owned and governed. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be owned by the state necessarily or controlled by the state. In fact, it could be even more interesting if they're not, but you know, we're seeing all kinds of organizing right now with in web three and the world of DAOs, which we've talked about in other episodes. And it does give me hope that like artists could potentially build their own platforms that work for them and that function maybe more like workers cooperatives or artist cooperatives and they make decisions over you know how their music is shared like what do they want to put a paywall on what do they not want to put a paywall on and use as more of a promotional tool if there are algorithms like what would the algorithms be like they could vote on those algorithms I I don't think it's out of the question for artists to start experimenting with this kind of thing on a smaller scale. And I think they already are like, it it probably just takes like an influential artist or two with a strong following to try something like this and see if it works. Definitely. Uh, Not quite the same thing, but I feel like Tidal kind of attempted to do that. Mm -hmm. I know like, like maybe like two people who use Tidal. I had it for a couple months. But, you know, Tidal has never gotten the same traction as Spotify. And that has like some huge artist names behind it, like some of the biggest in the game. 
I, I think what I'm thinking of is like at this point is just like something a little smaller scale, more of a, a prominent independent artist, like in the same way that artists are successfully able to sell like collections of NFTs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Being like, hey, guess what? My music is only available here from now on. Like, that's where you can get it. And just, I don't know, like, maybe we'll be seeing more of that. And I think it could be interesting to see that. Yeah, maybe it's a question of, like, unengineering, like, having one massive platform and it becoming a question of several. Although, of course, that's all just kind of comes back to this sort of insidious question of convenience. But I don't know. We'll see. Maybe, maybe collective support will trump convenience and it'll it'll level out into some happy medium between the two or something happens and where you know one of the major platforms you know in an ideal world could be transformed into something that is more democratically governed and collectively owned i mean i don't see the platforms themselves like wanting something like that to happen but i don't know jack dorsey wanted Twitter to be turned into a decentralized platform that was like kind of collectively owned and governed. So who knows? Well, I have hope. I think even in these bleak times, there's a lot of room for opportunity. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Spotify. (laughs) Actually, please. Sure. Follow us on Spotify if you want, but we'd much rather you follow us on Substack because then we can you know, email you our episodes directly. This is super cheesy, but yet you can also, through Substack, shell out for a paid subscription and financially support this podcast if you like it. Direct payment. No middleman. Culture Journalist is produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. If you're in today's discussion, we have got a load of further reading over at our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. Give us a share if you're a fan of the show to help support independent journalism. We'll see you real soon with season three.